This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Research. Knowledge sharing on financial research. Hello and thank you for joining us for this latest Blue Research podcast. The European Union is at risk of fragmentation along several lines. The bloc acted to overcome these risks, setting up some powerful tools, the Asset Purchase Programme, the Emergency Package and the Next Generation Fund. Well, during these last 30 years or so, the EU has encountered many crises. But this current crisis has an unprecedented size and magnitude, with all countries affected. Therefore, it is a catalyst for change of the EU. Well, a new European landscape is being drawn. And to discuss that, I'm joined today by Pierre Blanchet, Head of Investment Intelligence, and Didier Borowski, Head of Global Views. Pierre, let me start with you. The sovereign debt crisis increased economic fragmentation in the Eurozone and the management of public debt as a source of tensions in Europe. Could you explain how the current crisis affects these tensions? Yes, sure. Actually, the COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated the real economic fragmentation within the Eurozone. And it's unfortunate that countries with the highest debts actually suffer the most uh, economically from uh, the sovereign crisis uh, a couple of years ago and now are victims actually of uh, the the, the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So basically, the management of debt and public debt in particular has been a source of tension and actually mistrust among member states for years now. And, and the crisis actually exacerbated those tensions. There's a north and south, uh, if you will, public debt imbalance structure, which, uh, which structure the bond market itself, as we know, between core and, and periphery. And, and there's still a reminder of the convertibility risks that we have uh, priced in the markets. So therefore you have, uh, this crisis, which exacerbated those tensions such as uh, and other tension, sorry, just, just just like, you know, the fragmentations around the economic model, as well as uh, uh, the fragmentation around the vision of the EU. And Pierre, are they exacerbated or not? Yes, actually, large deficits post-COVID-19 will lead to further divergences between North and South and subdued real growth among member states, particularly in the south part of Europe. So therefore, the sustainability of debt will be in question uh, over the coming years again. And countries like Italy or Spain will see a significant pickup in debt. Italy will probably reach 160% debt to GDP. And France, for instance, will uh, probably be the 115%. So uh, these are very high number. And uh, regardless of our expectations for the recovery, that won't be enough actually to reduce debt Uh, the debt burden soon. So the decoupling between France and Germany, for instance, is striking in that respect. And it's true for other, uh, you know, uh, South Southern countries such as Italy and Spain, as I mentioned. So it's a big deal for Europe. And clearly, it's it's been exacerbated by uh, the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. Okay, and Pierre, are there any solutions uh, to deal with these imbalances? Well, the short-term fix is actually what the ECB is doing. The ECB, by buying uh, uh, via a big program uh, uh, sovereign bonds, actually is reducing or maintaining uh, or avoiding the fragmentation of the market. But that's not enough. And clearly, austerity measures are not an option at this stage. So it's it's all about pan-European transfer, as as uh, we can, Didi uh, will probably mention later, and national reform. That's that's the way forward in order to improve the resilience of the eurozone. Didier, let me turn to you. The objective of the European Commission Recovery Fund is to address the demand dependency of EU countries. 
Can you confirm that statement and tell us a bit more about it? Yes, in fact, there, there are different models in the Eurozone. And the fact is that the, the countries that uh, are the most, uh, uh, the hardest hit countries in this crisis are uh, uh, the peripheral countries that suffered the most from the sovereign debt uh, crisis uh, in 2012. And at the end of the day, we see a, a global lack of demand. This is a shock that uh, is a, a supply shock and a demand shock at the, at the, at the same time. And in addition to that, uh, you have different models and, uh, uh, in the Eurozone. And uh, peripheral countries tend to be more sensitive to uh, to uh, to domestic demand, in particular Spain. And we saw, in fact, very uh, different uh, fiscal responses uh, on, on the national level, and that was clearly uh, uh, suboptimal uh, because countries uh, enter this crisis with very different, in fact, uh, uh, room for maneuver to deal uh, with this uh, uh, this uh, asymmetric shock. In particular, Italy entered this crisis with a debt-to-GDP ratio which was close to 135% of GDP. So at the end of the day, a recovery fund uh, would help in fact, uh, uh, these countries that are, that have not the means, in fact, uh, to implement real counter-cyclical uh, 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 fiscal responses uh, to deal uh, with uh, the rising fragmentation that uh, uh, Pierre just uh, just mentioned, and uh, and that's probably the key, I would say, at this stage of the of the crisis to avoid an increase of uh, of the real economic fragmentation, a further increase. Okay, and Pierre, it seems that France and Germany are increasingly the new centres of gravity of the European Union. Uh, what have you observed to assess that? Well, I guess it's a direct consequence of Brexit. Uh, the Eurozone share of uh, the EU27 GDP uh, moved from 72% to 86%. And France and Germany account for 50% of the Eurozone, the Eurozone being, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the core of uh, the European Union. So it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a fact of numbers, I'd say. The other side is that countries which are not in the Euro area, such as Denmark, Sweden and Poland, account for less than 10% of uh, the European Union GDP uh, uh, population uh, to, to some extent. So um, they, 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 their part in the decision-making process is obviously uh, uh, identical when, when, uh, when decisions are made unanimously, but from an economic standpoint, uh, uh, non-Eurozone countries are, are very are much smaller now. And apart from Denmark, which opted out for uh, opt-out of the Euro, all the countries will eventually uh, join the euro. And what role does Brexit play now in terms of influencing change in Europe? Well, I guess Brexit allowed the EU to do things it would never have been or even tried to do. Uh, as uh, Didier mentioned, uh, the EU recovery fund, the ambitious plan of the European Commission would you never have been, if, I would say, even discussed under those terms uh, if uh, the UK was still part of the European Union. Uh, we recently wrote a paper on, on Brexit, actually, and, and we show that, uh, trying to show that uh, the single market is a common good for the European Union, and, and Europeans are, are very, very keen uh, to, to protect it. Uh, so Brexit uh, is playing a role as a, as a catalyst, I would say, just to show how important some of those institutions are and and and, and guide for the way forward. Europeans are, are want to protect actually the single market. They want to protect the the euro and uh, and the recovery fund. If it's uh, if it's launched, uh, will be there to also protect European economies. So that's that's uh, an unexpected consequences of Brexit, I'd say. And Didier, the EU Commission has called for a 750 billion euro recovery plan. 
Where are we today concerning the agreement of that plan? So the plan is clearly on the on the table. Uh, it was an initial proposal from France and Germany. That it has become a proposal from the European Commission. Um, it is the first time that uh, uh, um, there is a proposal to to issue a joint debt uh, uh, at this scale. So that's something which is very important. And uh, it, it, it should, we should not be surprised by the fact that EU members still disagree on the size of the fund. 500 billion versus, you know, 750 billion. It will be probably something in the middle around six, uh, 600 billion euros. They disagree still on the balance between grants and loans. And that's probably the, uh, uh, the, the major topic that will be uh, debated during the next uh, European Council on the, the 17th and 18th of July. Uh, the breakdown of transfers, the start date, uh, 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 the conditionality of any, uh, of any grant. So as you see, uh, all the technicalities uh, are on the table. But an important point is that uh, the principle of this plan uh, seems to be accepted by all, despite the reluctance of some few countries, which are called the Frugal Four, uh, the Netherlands, Austria, Sweden, and Denmark. They agree on the principle, but they disagree on the technicalities. So that, that's why the technicalities are on the table. An important point uh, for this plan is that uh, there is no debate also on the fact that it should help countries to reconverge and you will see some kind of a redistribution thanks to this uh, to this budget so that's uh, to some extent a game changer and i i think all countries have accepted that so that's more to talk about the technicalities now and why do you think this fund will improve the resilience of the monetary union and strengthen the role of the euro well we do believe that in fact uh, as, as we said uh, the economic fragmentation has increased following uh, the COVID-19 crisis. And we need to find new tools. And clearly, the recovery fund is a key tool to help the hardest hit countries to reconverge toward, uh, uh, toward the average uh, eurozone, I would say. And at the end of the day, uh, when you look at the, at the details, you have an insurance element in the, in the, in the proposal. You have a redistribution element from rich to poor countries. Uh, that does not put really uh, 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 the taxpayer of the northern European countries at risk. So that's, uh, that's, I would say, a very small project that could be, at the end of the day, accepted by all. And at the end of the day, we believe that it's a clearly uh, a crisis mitigation tool for the future. Um, we uh, believe that uh, uh, this, uh, uh, in fact, uh, these tools, as a budget, for instance, would be uh, probably mobilized looking ahead uh, in the future crisis. So it's not only about talking about a, an emergency plan to deal with this particular crisis. It's clearly an institutional reform that is ongoing uh, in Europe and that will probably help uh, economies to reconverge that's why that's key for the resilience of the eurozone. As you probably know, 
many observers say that uh, the ECB is the only, the only game in town, that you have only monetary policies. In fact, what we are seeing now is that you have two legs. You have on the one hand the ECB monetary policy, and gradually you will see more fiscal policy dealing with uh, economic fragmentations. And that's clearly good news for the future and for the, uh, and for the resilience of the Eurozone. And what I mean by the resilience is the Eurozone, the capacity capacity to deal with future cho- with future shocks. Okay, and Didier, non-performing loans are going to rise and that's going to lead to a further deterioration of bank balance sheets. What solutions are there for absorbing these loans? Yes, that, that's, a, that's a key point, in fact, to have in mind. Uh, during crisis, in fact, uh, the number of loans that can't be paid back tends to increase over time. And it's in particular the case following uh, deep, uh, deep recessions. And it's clearly critical to deal with rising non-performing loans in these circumstances. And the good news is that the situation is very different from uh, uh, the one that we had after the great financial crisis in 2008. I mean, banks have higher capital. Uh, 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 There was no credit boom before, uh, before the crisis. But, and that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, banks are less profitable. Government debt is much higher. Corporate balance sheets has, are weaker. So we expect default rates to increase over time. And uh, uh, it will, in fact, weaken banks at the worst moment of time. And that's, that's the point. And that's why, in fact, you have some proposals that, uh, that were uh, uh, deeply commented, in fact, uh, uh, in 2017 to create what we call a bad bank, uh, which uh, would, in practice, uh, uh, in fact, uh, 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 absorb bad loans, securitize them, and sell them to investors. And most of these uh, proposals involve, at some point, some government support or guarantees from uh, the European Stability Mechanism. There are proposals also to limit uh, risk sharing uh, in this uh, in this environment. So far. Uh, these proposals have been rejected in the past by uh, the European Commission because uh, rules uh, cannot allow, in fact, state aid, uh, uh, state aid in these circumstances. But in exceptional circumstances, uh, in fact, uh, the, the, the rule could be uh, bypassed. And that would uh, be very good news because the key, in fact, is to maintain the credit channel alive. So it is well alive at this stage of the crisis thanks to liquidity, exceptional liquidity measures taken by the ECB. But at some point in time, following this deep crisis in 2021-2022, it's highly likely that we will see the uh, share of non-performing loan rising and uh, and the bad bank and the creation of a bad bank may thus uh, come back on the fore at that point of time. Pierre, the establishment of a Eurozone treasury is something that's under discussion. Is this new institution necessary now? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, I guess it's a matter of size. Uh, if the European Recovery Fund becomes a permanent mechanism, if other programs actually increase the size of the EU budget, you will eventually need an institutional body to, to manage uh, the issued debt as well as the budget itself. So the Eurozone Treasury to oversight actually uh, the budget is, uh, will be needed. It wasn't, it wasn't the case, uh, uh, since then, just because uh, the, the overall budget of the EU was fairly small. Less 
than 1% or 1.2% of uh, EU gross national income. But uh, if we want uh, uh, the, EU, the EU to deal with the current crisis, and as we say in this paper, to avoid fragmentation, then we need uh, much bigger transfers, as mentioned by Didi earlier. And we probably need to think about uh, uh, a EU budget, which would be 5 to up to 10% of uh, the uh, EU GNI. So a bigger budget means uh, a treasury to head by uh, a Eurozone Minister of Finance in order to, to manage this. It will also require surveillance uh, uh, from those policies by the parliament, such as any parliament actually uh, manages a budget across uh, the, the EU. So that's a transfer, also a political transfer to the European Parliament in order to oversight uh, what uh, the EU treasury will do. And Pierre, do you think it will be easy to implement? Well, I guess uh, no, <laughs> because uh, just from what I've just said to you earlier, to create a new institution, a EU Treasury and an EU Minister of Finance and transfer competencies to the Europe Parliament, all those three things are difficult to achieve. Uh, they, are, they are also uh, obviously uh, constrained by the existing uh, Treasury of the various countries and countries wants to maintain their fiscal freedom. You also have the issue of uh, the size of the budget, uh, which we obviously uh, uh, at interfere with the national budgets and more importantly uh, the point around uh, voting and the decision-making process of the union clearly if you have a much bigger budget and you manage to get a, a, a EU treasury then you need to get rid of the rule of uh, unanimity in in some of the important decisions so this is not easy to achieve but I think but we think and that's a point in the paper that it's something that that should happen eventually and Pierre, if we put ourselves in the shoes of investors, what could be the impact for the euro and European bonds and equities? Well, I guess f first we, we need to start where, uh, to what Didier was saying is that on the back of those, uh, uh, of those uh, uh, new measures and changes, uh, this reinforces the, the strength of the European Union and the euro area in particular, and therefore it has an impact on the euro. There's still a lot of skepticism uh, among international investors in particular about uh, the EU and the fate of the eurozone. We think that actually history shows the opposite, that the ECB uh, confirmed its status uh, on the back of the global financial crisis and the eurozone crisis, the ECB uh, actually is now diverging significantly from the capital key. It's expanding its balance sheet. It's managing things as an independent central bank and gives itself, you know, freedom on size instruments, jurisdictions, and so on, as Madame Lagarde uh, usually uh, reminds us. So um, post-COVID, we think actually uh, that should strengthen the position of the euro. But there are other aspects, I think, uh, that are linked to a potential common debt issuance, a common that instruments will also change actually the dynamic of the euro area bond market and, and be, a, I think, a, a good in, a incentive for investors for at least three reasons. The first is that today um, there's still uh, um, most, most of the debt instruments used are linked to the German Bund, which, which basically leads the German Bund to be in negative yield, but also uh, because it's, it's not as big as the entire euro, euro area. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of buying pressure on this uh, safe haven assets. And overall, the world is short of safe havens. So uh, if the euro area is able to issue uh, higher rated uh, and liquid common debt, that would change the dynamic of the bond market itself uh, and become obviously uh, and is become, you know, strengthening the euro, but also uh, be a source of performance for, for international investors. And last point is that 
uh, a common debt issuance will also uh, get rid of uh, what is today a puzzle of single issuers. So you would have a, a, a very different bond market. You will have a strengthened euro, and which means that for equity investors as well, you should expect actually part of the discount that we usually see on European assets to, uh, if not disappear, at least to, to be diminished. So eventually uh, the crisis will, uh, this COVID crisis can, can bring to a, a uh, you know, a more efficient, uh, uh, say, financial market and investment opportunities for international investors in particular. Okay, and Didier, you seem convinced that long-term investors are going to benefit from this new European landscape currently taking shape. Why do you think that is? Well, in fact, what we observe is that markets uh, tend to focus more on uh, short-term political clashes than on long-term uh, improvements. And what we are seeing these days is that once again, uh, following this crisis, uh, the European landscape uh, will be uh, uh, strengthened, both uh, regarding its financial architecture. We uh, expect further progress on the capital market union and on the banking union following this crisis. The fiscal architecture of uh, the Eurozone will probably evolve also regarding, for instance, fiscal rules that uh, will very likely be reconsidered because they have proved to be, in fact, uh, uh, excessively pro-cyclical uh, in the past. And we have now this common debt instrument that will uh, probably uh, be uh, there for a long period of time. And uh, as uh, uh, Pierre mentioned, the political architecture also of the Eurozone uh, is likely to evolve. So if you think, if you put things into perspective, uh, there is clearly uh, 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 the architecture of the monetary union is in the making. And, uh, and, uh, over the past two decades, we've seen uh, very substantial progresses. And once again, and that's our key message, we will see uh, new, new progresses, uh, in this, uh, in this direction. And uh, foreign investors should look at the uh, European Union as a whole and should look at imbalances of the European Union as a whole instead of uh, focusing on uh, 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 economic data at the national level. If you have this convergence or reconvergence that we expect in the coming years following the, the recovery fund, when you look at the whole European Union, clearly you have less imbalances in Europe, for instance, than you have in the, in the United States. And uh, the euro uh, has become an international reserve uh, currency and its role over time will probably uh, be also uh, reinforced. So uh, all in all, uh, uh, if uh, uh, Europe goes through another crisis, as we mentioned earlier, uh, it will be much more resilient with new uh, tools uh, on the fiscal side and on the monetary side, and perhaps even a bad bank to deal with uh, non-performing loans. So it's a more resilient model looking ahead. And uh, investors should not uh, ask for, you know, a kind of political risk premium. That's uh, that's our point. So slowly but surely, what we are seeing is that the the EU, the EU authorities are learning the lessons of history, and uh, so should do investors. Uh, the range of tools of the European Union uh, that the EU has at as disposal uh, uh, becomes uh, clearer uh, with uh, each crisis and will bring further resilience of the Eurozone, and therefore it will lower investor risks over time. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for that. That's all we have time for for today's Blue Research podcast. Thank you very much indeed to 
Pierre Blanchet, head of investment intelligence, and Didier Borowski, head of Global Views, for talking to us about the post-COVID European landscape. And thank you to you for listening. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors, as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.